0: More than 300 years ago, a French philosopher wrote this O God, the creature knows not to what end thou hast made him. Teach him, and write in the depths of his soul that the clay must suffer itself to be shaped at the will of the potter. To what end were we made? That's what that philosopher was asking that question and calling out to God for answers. To what purpose do we live? It's a good question for all of us, not just to what end are we made, but to what end are we living today? For what purpose are we living? This morning as we continue in the book of Ecclesiastes, that question of to what end or for what purpose are you living will sort of guide our study. There's really two potential paths for this. It is either living for self or living for God. And the writer in Ecclesiastes will make that very clear. We're going to be in about midway through chapter 1. We'll start in verse 12, and we'll start reading in just a moment. But just by way of introduction, a couple of the themes we talked about last Sunday um, it, as we introduced this book of Ecclesiastes from chapter 1, two themes that really help guide our understanding of the book. And the one is, uh, as we came to the Scripture memory part, we all said vanity of vanities, and it's that Hebrew word, Hebel behind vanity. I was thinking of that as we were doing the scripture memory, um, it, it just sort of struck me at the moment. Kevin and Stuart and I spent a lot of time trying to find scripture memory passages from Ecclesiastes. Is not all that easy. And, and here we have these wonderful worshipful songs, and then we all go, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And it seems a, a little, I don't know, anticlimactic or something. But the, the writer in Ecclesiastes uses that word constantly in the book, and it is this word, Hebrew word, hebel, and it is the idea of things that are futile, worthless, fleeting. Uh, We talked about last week the idea of vapor or smoke. So it's something that is seen that he's grasping at. It seems real, but it's almost like an illusion because when he grabs at it, he can't really hold on to it. It's not substantial. It doesn't satisfy Instead, it becomes that which just sort of is is futile in the end. The second theme is the phrase, under the sun. We'll see that right away in the passage we're in this morning, a variation on it. Under heaven is what he'll use here, but it's under the sun or under heaven. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes uses that phrase to talk about a worldview. When you look at life apart from God... When you look at life under the sun, in other words, your, your vision of life, your understanding of life is locked in at what you can see and feel and hear and touch, and it's all about this existence and not above the sun, and then it is that under the sun kind of life that the teacher's writing about that ultimately leads to futility. Your outlook on life is doomed to frustration if it is locked in sort of under the sun. So this morning we pick up in chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to actually go all the way through chapter 2. We won't hit every verse in depth, but I think we'll see it enough to to get the general sense of what the teacher is saying. But let's start in one twelve and just a few of these verses here. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, or hebel, and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving After wind. Let me stop there. Here's where we're going this morning. By God's design, a life that may be lived at least in earthly terms to the fullest in the sense of it includes hard work, it includes good food, it includes pleasure, and yet is lived apart from God, is a life that is ultimately destined to run into a wall of futility and frustration. It is by God's design that this occurs and the contrast to that is a life that rests in God's control and receives those same things, work and pleasure and food and drink, receives those as gifts from God and he'll allude to that at the very end of this section this morning. But we could summarize it really with a question, are you living life for God or are you trying to be God? With the things that you are making use of, with the things that you are receiving, How are you using them, as one who is a recipient from God or as one who is treating them almost as if you are a God with them? To what end are you living? The teacher starts here by examining wisdom. This is sort of the beginning of his series of tests of, I I tried this and I tried that, and I'm, I'm in this search for meaning... And so I'm going to try these different things in life. And so he's going to start with wisdom. And this is one of those passages that I I think leans us toward. I talked last week about the authorship issue, the human authorship issue. I think it leans us toward Solomon. And in the area of wisdom, we know that Solomon was extraordinarily gifted by God. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 3, when God said to Solomon to ask for something, Solomon asked for wisdom. 1 Kings 3 verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. So he says now in verse 13, I I applied my wisdom. I fly my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. There's tremendous irony in what Solomon's about to explain to us that he did. God gifted him with this magnificent, incomparable wisdom to discern and to understand. And Solomon essentially devotes it, if it's Solomon, the teacher certainly uh, devotes it to exploring life under heaven. He takes what God has given him, And uses it for his own purpose, to try to sort out life and figure out life apart from God. And and, and that's important to this whole passage because it's really part of the theme here is this taking of that which God has given and using it for essentially selfish gain. Taking all of this great wisdom and using it to try to figure out all the answers to life apart from God. And what he says here, as we've already read, is that, behold, it's all Hebel. It's all striving after the wind. It's all vanity. It's all fleeting, and it's futile. He's taken the wisdom that God has given him, and he's explored, and he's found it to be Hebel. But what's interesting here, and what's kind of a, a, a new thought at this point, is what he alludes to in verses 13 and 15, and that is, it is by God's design that it is this way verse 13 I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with if you try to take God's good gifts in this case his wisdom that he's bestowed the mind that he's given you to think with the food the drink the job the the simple pleasures in life if you take those and seek to use them strictly for yourself to exploit them for your own profit and your own gain and your own sense of accomplishment, and not as gifts of God's kindness that you and I are fully undeserving of, but that he gives by his grace. If you take and use them strictly for selfish gain, then your pursuit of meaning and ultimate joy and satisfaction will be an unhappy business. that's what he says there in verse 13. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. It's the idea that I I, I took this wisdom that God gave me, and I I tried to use it for myself to figure it all out. And by God's design, if I'm going to take what God's given me and just use it for myself, God's going to make it into something that by his design is not going to satisfy. It's not going to please. Because once you detach God from your worldview, from how you look at the world, then suddenly it's all completely random and meaningless. It could happen for any of a number of reasons if there is no creator and sustainer over this life. Then it just happens because it happens, because you had a bad, unlucky day. And and there's no finding hope in hard situations because there's really no, no one to turn to who's in control, who you can rely on. It might go good, it might go poorly. And instead, we spend all of our time trying to fix things, trying to make life better and fix the problems. And that's what he's alluding to in verse 15 when he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Compare that to Ecclesiastes 7.13, which says, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Life under the sun is not paradise. And that's what God's trying to remind us here, is that we spend time, especially if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, you spend all this time trying to fix things and straighten things and make things right. And that's not God's design, because in this life, there was one paradise. He created it back at the beginning, at the end of day six, when he said, everything is very good. And he put Adam and Eve in this sinless, perfect creation. And what did Adam and Eve do? They spoiled it. They said, we want to be more like you. Thank you for all this, but that's not enough. We want to be like you. And they rebelled against God. And God subjected his creation to futility at that point. Man lost paradise at that point, and suddenly creation became a sin-afflicted creation that you can't make straight by human wisdom. Romans 8 verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God made things on earth to be crooked in response to man's sinful rebellion. He did it purposefully so that now we must long for something else. We can't by our own skill and insight and accomplishments and resumes. We can't fix it all and and make it all right because God, by his design, has brought it to a place that we would have to rely on someone outside of ourselves and have to rely on our Creator. That that idea of subjecting it to futility, a great example of that is Genesis chapter 11 when the peoples of the world are saying, we should all get together and build a tower to the heavens, kind of as a monument to what man could do, man's skill and his power. And when you bring them all together, we can build this enormous tower to the heavens. Remember that story? And what did God do? He confounded their languages, and suddenly they all couldn't communicate, and that was the end of the tower project. And that was God's way of saying, no, you don't get it. It's, you're not going to get it in this life. It's not about what you can do and you can create. It's your reliance on me. And you keep trying to, to make straight things that, that I've made crooked. It's not going to work. You're ultimately going to have to come to me and cry out and say, God, you make it straight. Or, or God, you give me grace to live with the crooked. This is not heaven. For as much as people try through good deeds or even through governmental policies to try to create a place where everybody will be happy and everybody will get along and will somehow find the paradise we lost, it's not going to happen on this side of eternity. That doesn't absolve us from being believers in this world and living godly lives and seeking to minister to people, but it does say we need to understand this is not it. that that God has designed it that way so that man will long for something outside of himself. One commentator put it like this, people may live secularly in the earthly realm. In other words, people living apart from God. People may live secularly in the earthly realm, but the problems they encounter are ordained by the God who occupies the heavenly realm. Mankind cannot be indifferent to or be detached from the futility which besets him. It is an inescapable fact of one's humanity. God in his mercy will not allow us to live for long with that age-old myth that somehow we are like little gods, that if we just apply ourselves with our strength and our wisdom and our power, we can do anything, that we can do it because of who we are and how smart we are and how capable we are. At some point, God's design is that we would come to the end of ourselves, and God has allowed man's sinful nature, frankly, to ruin the creation, in a way that would make us say, we need a savior. We need one who can actually fix this, and the only way that happens is one who can redeem the hearts of fallen man, who can save them and rescue them from their own sin. He says then in 118 at the end of this uh, section, for in much wisdom is much vexation or grievousness, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The teacher in Ecclesiastes says the more I studied this, the more I understood it, the more I gained knowledge, the sadder I became. It actually made me sad to look at life under the sun because the more that I examined it, the more I saw man scheming and planning and trying and endeavoring to fix and and straighten out and and do all these things and none of it working, it all coming up futile. And He said the more I understood, the more I realized this isn't going to happen. We're, we, we can't just sort of tell people. We all just need to get along and set a policy that says everybody's going to get along or, or whatever it's going to be. It, it's just not going to happen that way. It's going to take a God who can change the hearts of human beings. Going back to Romans 8, it says, "...the creation waits with eager longing or eager expectation for that day when the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption." Because of man's sin, God has built all of these sort of potholes and obstacles along the way so that as people strive to search for the meaning of life, if they seek to do so fully under the sun and find it in man-centered means, they keep running into these roadblocks that keep saying, no, this isn't the answer, that's not the answer, this isn't satisfying, that's not satisfying, what is it? And all of it is designed to point us upward. To look above the sun. Only God can provide that way. As as believers in Jesus Christ, you and I still face the same sorts of temptations, don't we? To to want to take things into our own hands. To want to fix things. To not be dependent on on God. To not cry out to God for help. To think we can do this. We can sort of muscle our way through it. The message in Ecclesiastes over and over again is no, you can't. And that's okay because your Father in heaven has designed it that way so that you would rest in him, that you would trust him. So there's this search for meaning that he's tried through wisdom. Conclusion on that is futility. So now he tries something else. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So he's going to give us the conclusion right off the bat. I tried pleasure, it didn't work. But he tells us how it went. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them and all kinds of fruit trees. I, I made myself pools from which to Also, my wisdom remained with me to boot, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Stop there a minute. Again, if if indeed this is Solomon, which certainly makes the argument, this is certainly all within his reach. This is a guy who is king. And he has the capacity to do as he pleases and to get what he wants and to, to, to order whatever he needs to be done. Back in 1 Kings 3 that we read from before, after he had asked God for wisdom and God said, I will give you that, verse 13, God said, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. That ultimately becomes Solomon's downfall in some sense. Solomon had all of this within his reach. He not only had wisdom beyond all who had come before him or would follow, but he now has riches and honor, and he spends it. I mean you, you see the description here. He says, I just I built whatever I wanted to build. I built houses and gardens and pools and and I, you know, did vineyards and and I just I had it all. Anything that my eyes laid their sight on, and I said, if I want it, I can have it. And this wise king lived like an utter fool. It tells us in 1 Kings 11 that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and that would be sexual partners, and it says, and they turned away his heart so that his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. This was a guy who, in worldly terms, seemed like he had everything, and it was destroying him by God's design. That's the way it it had to go to show him that with all this stuff, you're still not going to be happy in the end. There's an old beer commercial from the 80s that begins, who says you can't have it all? Oh, yes, you can. This has been man's, Solomon's not new to this. We can look back at Solomon and shake our heads, but this has been in man's heart from day one. You put Adam and Eve and you give them perfection, and and what do they want? More. I want more knowledge. And and, and that driving quest for satisfaction. And it lures us in, even though we know it's a complete myth, you can't have it all, and yet there's that, that something that drives, that sort of lures us into chasing after it. Can you have it all? No, but I'm going to try, right? I'm going to keep pursuing. Solomon's conclusion to it all in 2, verse 11, chapter 2, 11 was, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained, what's the phrase? Under the sun. So, again, if you're just from a worldly point of view, sitting under this guy who's giving you, who who has this empire at his fingertips and you expect him to give you his wisdom, now you come to this point of saying, wait, you mean houses, pools, buildings, the best wine cellar in the empire, the largest treasury of any country nearby, sex, activities, you name it. You want it, you got it, and you had all that and it's still Hebel? It's still, like, it's still like just running after the wind and saying, I, I, I just want to catch that. If I, if I get that, then I'll be happy. If I get that, and he says, yes. It's all under the sun. It's all just Hebel. It still doesn't quench the hunger in the soul. That's his conclusion on pleasure. He's going to go back to wisdom one more time. 2.12 here now. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king, only what has already been done? Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Let me stop there. In the aftermath of his frustration over the the pleasure experiment, he returns to wisdom, and he seems to be emphasizing to us the point that, yeah, I went back to wisdom because, frankly, who else can test wisdom better than I can? That's that point there in verse 12 when he says, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. There is not anyone who's going to come after Solomon who's going to be any wiser or any wealthier. And so he says, I'm, I'm going to go back and I'm going to try this one more time because after all, I've got, I've got all this wisdom. There's got to be some answer to it. And so he pursues this again. And, he, and in fact, he says, wisdom is a good thing, right? Right? We know wisdom is better than foolishness. And the, he, he, in fact, says it there. It's like comparing light and darkness. The, the wise man can see where he's going. The, the path is lit before him. The fool is just stumbling in the darkness. So wisdom is great. I have wisdom. Consequently, I ought to be able to figure this out. Seems to be his approach at this point. If there's that much difference and wisdom is that much better, somehow this needs to make sense. But one thing throws him off. He alludes to it at the end of verse 14 and then the next couple of verses. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them, the wise and the fool. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. Teacher's coming back to a point that he introduced to us back early in chapter one. That's that idea of forgetfulness. And that is, I can do all of this stuff, build all of these buildings, put the little plaque on the side of it that says, you know, built by, and and put my name in there, you know, and, and have the bricks and everything engraved, and I can do all of that. And in the end, at some point, somewhere down the road, people will go, who? Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah, he was pretty foolish, wasn't he? And that'll be it. And he's, what's really getting him at this point is, for all of man's wisdom, he can't stop the inevitable under the sun, which is death. Man, by his scientific experiments, has been able to maybe help us get better diets and exercise and, and help expand, you know, the, the years of our life by a few, you know, your, your age, you might get to live a little bit longer because of, of, of man's gain, sort of an understanding, the better food we should eat and that kind of stuff. But in the end, death is the great equalizer. And that's what he's saying here. So I, God has gifted me with fantastic wisdom that I can think about things so deeply and I, am, I can see them so clearly and this person over here is like they're stumbling in the darkness. They don't even know where to begin to think and yet at the end, we both end up under the sun, we both end up in the ground. We're both going to die. And, and frankly, I, I may die before he dies. He may even live longer than I do. But in the end, the race all gets to the same point. Somebody's burying my body, and that's the end. And that's now what's, what's catching him and frustrating him, that all this wisdom, and I can't really get an advantage over the fool when it comes to how long I get to enjoy life. So 2.18, he shifts now. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil this, this is This is a complicated way of saying life 's not fair isn 't it I mean that 's really what he 's coming to at this point we 've already seen him test wisdom and pleasure and say, okay that 's futile now the light has come on that listen in the end, we all die under the sun it, it, it all just the, the clock runs out at some point for all of us, and so now he concludes that work then is futile because. Everything I've built, everything I've worked for, everything I've accomplished, all the stuff on my resume, if under the sun it still ends in the same place as the fool who didn't build a thing and doesn't have a resume, then what's the point? Why have I expended all this effort, he's expended none, and we're both dead? It doesn't make sense. We take on a new job, we want to pursue it well. We want to maybe do it better than the last person who did it. Sometimes, our motives get into we, we really want to amass income from it. We want to get promoted. We want success, you know, as a result of that. We really want to press on and, and, and see that our success is reflected in our pay and our status. The problem is, as the teacher says, I, I could build this fabulous business that translates into this incredible income that gives me this enormous estate, and then I die, and the whole thing is taken over by somebody else. It's, it's all theirs at that point. All this stuff that I've worked for, and it's passed down to someone else. It's the old adage of you can't take it with you. That's, that's what he's dealing with right now. That's what's confronting him. Is I, I've, I've set up this incredible kingdom, and, and people are in awe of the pools that I have that water the gardens and the vineyards that I have, and my wine is just the best. And they go, oh, that's incredible. And when I die, I've lost all of it. And so what difference does that make from the fool? Keep in mind again, this is all under the sun. He's he's stressing that point. He said it in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Verse 20, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. He's saying... This is it. If this is life, then I put all this effort into my job and one day I may drop dead on the job and some flunky over here who really doesn't understand the business half as well as I do, he's going to get put in charge. How does that work? And everything that I amassed from it is going to get handed to some son of mine who might be an absolute fool and who will spend it and say, thanks, as they bury me. Thanks for what you left. And this is just now frustrating him no end, that he could do all this and not be appreciated for it, and not be remembered for it. I was thinking about that this week. I, three of my four grandparents had passed away by the time I was an infant, and the, the fourth one, I was eight years old when, when she passed away, so my grandparents... I. I have no real recollection except for one grandma of going up to her house and getting cookies and milk. You know, that was, that's my memory. You always remember kind of the food stuff or the treat sort of stuff, right? That's my one recollection. But so I, I really have to think when it comes to, if somebody asks about, you know, ancestors, I've not pursued a lot of genealogy stuff. I've got to work through... Robin will remind me of the names of my grandparents better than I will remember them most of the time because she's actually read and thought about that stuff more. They built stuff. They ran businesses. They they had farms. they, They had an estate. And I'm sure that they intended for stuff to be passed down to make life better for their family. And they worked hard. But the reality is... They're not on the forefront of my mind at a hall a regular basis. I'm not thinking. I'm not appreciating. I'm not stopping and thinking, oh, wow. Think of what they did. And I, I, for most of you, even if you know your grandparents well and, can, and recite their story, we just have to go back a generation or two. And, and at some point, you'll hit that point where it's like, I don't know. I don't know who they were. I don't know what they did. I don't know if they were wise or foolish, hardworking or not. Just don't know. In one way or another, what was done before ultimately is left for the benefit of others who may squander it, who may be fools with it. And the teacher said, if that's how this, if that's how this work thing goes, then all of my hard work is eventually forgotten, and all of my accomplishments are for naught because I want them for me. That's, that's life under the sun. It's all about me, and, and I'm not benefiting at that point. If I die and they all just go away and to maybe who's... Someone who's a fool. That's Hebel. And so verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. We've seen this before. It is the preacher looking at something he's just finished testing and shaking his head and going, what's the point? Why, why put in this effort? With as many fools as there are in the world, odds are that at some point, the portfolio that I built, and the property that I bought, and the accomplishments that I made, and all of this stuff that I put together, odds are that somewhere, all that stuff that I built with my hands, and my wisdom, and my strength, will end up in the hands of someone who doesn't apply wisdom and could care less. And it'll all be for naught. And he's troubled by this. On top of all that, he says there in verse 23, this work was hard. He says his work is vexation. It's grievous. He he didn't just, there there might be some tendency as we look at Solomon to go, well, this guy just sort of, you know, told everybody what to do. And certainly there was an element of that. But as he says, this was vexation. Even in the night, my heart didn't rest. Can you see Solomon just laying there at night thinking, We've got this drainage issue with this pool up here and this vineyard and something's not right somewhere in the kingdom and he's thinking about it and how is it going to get fixed? And even at night he can't sleep. You have those nights? You know, it's Sunday night and the week's about to begin and you're thinking, I've got about 20 things to do this week and I don't know how I'm going to get them all done. And, and he's saying this work, it's hard, it's vexing, it's troubling, and yet if that's all there is, then it's heavy. It's futility. It's just futile and it slips away. But, and now come a couple of verses here that just sort of throw you as you're reading Ecclesiastes after all that we've read. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat, or who can have enjoyment. We should stop at the moment and go, wait a minute, where did this come from? Because before it was, remember, from the hand of God is just this unhappy business. By God's design, from God is this crookedness that you can't make straight. And now all of a sudden, it's changed. Remember where we started. To what end are you living? For what purpose are you striving and toiling, maybe laying awake and thinking? What's the the gain in your work, in your play, in your relationships? Are you living for God as a recipient of his grace, as, as receiving things from his hand undeserved, as his grace bestowed on you? Or are you simply grabbing for what's out there in life exclusively for yourself and your own gain and holding on tight because this is mine. Up to this point, all we've been reading is the perspective of the person who ultimately wanted to be God. That was his prevailing attitude, really. If you had to sum it up, the idol was himself. I am living for me. I am God of my life, master of my ship, doing what I want, accomplishing what I want, exploiting pleasure and work, for my benefit, living for today, living for the moment, for what I want, what I enjoy, period. That's been the description of life under the sun. And essentially, that is the worldview of under the sun. I am my own God. I'm going to do whatever I want. Life should revolve around me. You should be here to serve my needs. Situations should fall the way I want them to fall. Everything should work the way I want it to work. And when it doesn't, That's when I'm kind of like this child who doesn't get his way. And I complain and I'm upset. And I cry, vanity of vanities, it's all hell, Because it didn't work the way it was supposed to work, which was all to my favor. But suddenly in verse 24, the teacher shifts. There's no under the sun in these last verses of chapter 2. You don't see under the sun there. Instead, we see for the first time, in a real way, God. The teacher's perspective totally different in these verses, because he's not just acknowledging the existence of God, which he did previously. God has given this unhappy business. God has made it crooked. He's not only acknowledging the existence of God, but now he's saying, what I have is from God. God is the giver of good things. When it comes to food and drink and work and simple pleasures in life, it is a gift from the goodness of God. He's giving us a preview of what James wrote in James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. God is my provider. In fact, he's so sure about this, he says there in verse 25, for apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Not only is it now, wait a minute, this isn't all about me, but it's, you know what? If if God doesn't give me food, if God doesn't provide for me, I'm stuck. I don't have anything. It's only from the hand of God that I'm provided for. And just to be sure now that we get the fact that the teacher here is trying to draw a line in the sand, look at verse 26, because he's now going to make it very clear that there's, there's almost two categories of people here. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God This also is vanity and striving after the wind. He sets up this contrast right at the end of chapter 2 and says there are those who acknowledge God and who believe that the simple pleasures in life and the food and the drink and the job and whatever it is that sustains them and carries them through must come from God and they are gifts of his kindness and we should receive them as, as gifts from his hand and be thankful for them with a humble gratitude when we receive them. And then on the other hand, there are those whose guiding principle in life is, I want what I want when I want it, and I want it now, and that's the way it is. And if I don't get it, I'm going to be really unhappy. What's in it for me? And, and it's so interesting that his description of those in verse 26, but to the sinner, God has given the business of gathering and collecting. Is this what you want? Is this what you want to make life about? Is, is what you can see? Go ahead. gather. Gather stuff. Gather relationships that end up getting broken along the way. Gather, collect, just, just accumulate all this stuff until you run out of room in your home and then you, you rent a storage facility and you put some in there and then you build a shed and you put some in there and you just keep gathering all that stuff. And what will it get you? What are you going to do with that stuff? One day when it's all over and you die and there's no room for all that stuff anymore, now what do you do? Jesus addressed this, didn't he? In the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. That parable, he describes what is essentially a very successful farmer. But he, it's so interesting how he describes that farmer's success. The beginning of the parable, Jesus says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. That is a not too subtle jab at where this rich man's success came from. The land produced plentifully. Well, who was responsible for the land? For the soil, for the rain, for the sun? Who blessed this guy so that his land produced and produced? It was God. But the reality is we know from the parable that Jesus tells this guy was just like, look at me. (laughs) I mean, look at me compared to that farmer down the road. I can grow anything. I've got so much growing that i got to go out and build bigger barns. Because, frankly... In his mind, I'm amazing, right? I've done all this. And what happens? All he sees is his success. Jesus in Luke 12, 19 says, this is the guy speaking, and I will say to my soul, soul, see how much this sounds like Ecclesiastes and under the sun. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That guy is living out exactly what the teacher in Ecclesiastes was describing. This, Yes, I have crops, and I have drink, and I have food, and it is for my merriment because I have earned it, because I have worked so hard, and I have built this, and I have done it, and, and I can sit back, as he says, for years to come and be satisfied. And then all of a sudden, he is standing before God. And there's no barns, there's no acreage, there's no crops, there's nothing that he owned. It's just him accountable to his creator for spending his life trying to rob God of the glory that only God deserved for what God did on his farm. And suddenly his soul is required of him. Man schemes and plans as Ecclesiastes continues to remind us. Man sets goals and knows what he wants. But God will not allow us to follow that path forever acting as if we can do this on our own. As if this is all about me and I can accomplish this. God wants us to search for for meaning, and for satisfaction. He's designed us that way, but he's also designed things into the creation that keep standing up like blaring signs saying, look above the sun. This is not where the answer is. The ultimate satisfaction is found in our creator. And God wants us to find contentment and joy. That's, that's, this writer in Ecclesiastes keeps painting this bleak picture. God wants us to have contentment and joy. He wants us to enjoy his creation. But he wants us to do it as that which is a gift. To respond and say, I I don't deserve this, God. I don't deserve this blessing. Thank you for it. And with gratitude and contentment and trust in his ways. And so even when we don't get everything that we want on that little checkbox list of things that we we hope that God provides, even then we can still be content and say, my creator knows I don't need this right now maybe like Solomon my my creator maybe knows that if I get too much of something, I'm going to be a mess with it and I'm going to ruin it, so he hasn't given it to me right now, and that's okay I can still rest in that receive the blessings in life as acts of God's favor, and know first and foremost, that he gave his son to die for you to stand in our place, to be a ransom for us, to take our sin, our, our lust, our, our desires for self-acclaim, all this stuff that besets this teacher in Ecclesiastes that we know would churn in our own hearts. God has taken all that and placed it on Jesus Christ and punished it in him and given, <laughs> resurrected him from the dead to give us life and satisfaction. And meaning that goes far beyond the sun. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we are here right now breathing, taking in life, in the company of of brothers and sisters with whom we enjoy fellowship. We're in this air conditioned building that we don't deserve. We're probably going to head out to lunch or go home and grab a bite to eat after this and um, enjoy something to drink and, and relax this afternoon or, or maybe some are going off to work to a job that they have to do this afternoon. Uh, there's perhaps things to be done around the house. Thank you. Thank you for strength to be able to do those things. Thank you for the, the fact that our labor is not in vain. Thank you for providing in so many ways and, and being so gracious and kind to us. Not just meeting the, the basic needs, but in providing immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Lord, forgive us for when we act like this is all just due because we've worked so hard that somehow it's our accomplishment that got us there. Forgive us for that kind of self-centered pride that stands like the teacher and says, wow, I've done a great job here. Lord, let us find our acclaim from you, our acclaim from resting in you and trusting in you and your provision. Help us to, to be content that we would find our acclaim one day in standing before you and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting alone in Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray that you would rescue them this day from the the struggle, the anxiety, the fear, the search, whatever it might be that they're going through in trying to find answers apart from Christ, this day would you open their heart to embrace the gospel and to believe that Jesus Christ alone is the one who has stood in their place and died for their sins and risen again to new life and offers to them life that is abundant, both in this life and the life that follows above the sun. Thank you, for, Lord, for, for showing us again, reminding us again of what we know what life is like under the sun. And thank you that it is not all there is. Thank you that there is so much more. And that whatever jobs we go off to, my brothers and sisters here, however menial we might even feel like they are, however redundant they are, however challenging and vexing they may be, we thank you for them. We thank you for putting us in a place to be able to work, accomplish a task, and to work as unto Christ, and to do it for your glory. Help us to, to trust that your ways are best, to be thankful this day in humble gratitude for food and drink, simple pleasures, your kindness to us. We thank you for all these things, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.